So you may recall before Christmas, we um, looked at Matthew chapter 16, uh, the first section. Well, the section from, from verse 13 to verse 20. I know it seems a long time ago now, doesn't it? And um, we remember that very high point of the gospel when the Lord Jesus asked his disciples, you know, who do men say I am? And they gave these various answers. And then he turned it on to them and he said, who do you say I am? And Peter, perhaps speaking on behalf of all of them, said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then, of course, Jesus um, was pleased by that answer. And he he told Peter that he was blessed because he'd been given a revelation of this. And then he spoke spoke somewhat about the the privileges and responsibilities that Peter and the apostles would have in the early church. We we tried to unpack a bit of that a few weeks ago. This was this was really a you know a high point of the gospel. This was you know you can, you can almost sense the pleasure of the Lord Jesus that his apostles, his disciples, have finally grasped this important truth that God has revealed to them. What we have now in today's passage, we're picking up on this. We we did the transfiguration last week. Unfortunately, we have to go back to that because we've missed a couple of weeks due to Christmas. But I hope you'll forgive the the break in the sequence. But it's good for us to go back to this and look at this because it's quite an abrupt change from that very high point that we looked at a few weeks ago when Peter and the others confess uh, the identity of the Lord Jesus. And we see quite a watershed moment here in these verses. So let's look at them together. Let's, I'm not going to do much more but go through them and explain a bit and perhaps give us something to think about this week. So verse 21 says this, From that time, that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. So have you noticed there, there's, a, there's already a, a sea change there in the ministry of Jesus? Up until that point, he hadn't begun to explain to them about the cross, about his suffering to come. And from this, this moment when Peter confesses the Lord Jesus, then he begins to explain to them that all these things must happen to him. I want us also to notice today that, that Jesus knows the exact details of what's about to happen to him. It's remarkably detailed, isn't it, the way he puts this across. Jesus has, a, has a, you know, a perfect understanding of what will befall him in due course. So he lists them, doesn't he? He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things at the hands of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish establishment. He must be killed. And then there's that almost as a footnote. He must be raised to life on the third day. Of course, how did, we could ask the question, how did, how did Jesus know the details of what was about to happen to him? Well, of course, we know, don't we, that the Lord Jesus and the Father, in some, some way which we cannot fully understand, planned this from eternity. This was the plan, if you can call it a plan. This was their purpose before the world was created, that, that, that God's Son would be exalted, that there would be a people for him that he would die for. So the Lord Jesus and the Father were perfectly united in this purpose. But of course, it was also prophesied in the scriptures of the Old Testament. And it would have been an amazing thing if had any of us been able to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear him expounding the Old Testament to us. We would be astounded 
at the, the richness of his knowledge, we would, never, it would never have occurred to us some of these, these, these things in the Old Testament actually pointing towards Jesus, types and figures and shadows and prophecies. The whole Old Testament is full of it. We, we in, our, in our own kind of faltering way, with the help of the Holy Spirit, try to, try to, try to find out more from the Old Testament to point us towards the Lord Jesus and you know, teach us his purposes and his ways and his character and, and the, the plan of the gospel. Luke 24, verse, verse 45, um, you, want, you can turn it up, turn to it. It says this, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, Luke 24, then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what was written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. So you had this, this wonderful occasion when Jesus opened the minds of his disciples and basically gave them a Bible study, went through the Old Testament verse by verse, teaching them about the plan of salvation prophesied in those verses. So we need to understand this, this plan of God's, these things which were ordained, were rooted in the prophecies of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. Do you remember that occasion in the garden when Jesus was arrested before his trial and crucifixion and his disciples tried to defend him by force? You know that one, you know, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Peter draws his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant and Jesus goes on to heal him. He says, put your sword away. What did Jesus say? Well, in Matthew 26, do you, do, you not, do you think I cannot call him my father? And he at once will put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then, says Jesus, would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? There's that word must again. It must happen this way. Now, I don't think Jesus is simply looking into the future and foreseeing what will happen. But he's, he's, he's talking about something which has been ordained by the sovereignty of God. God has ordained that these things should happen and must happen in this, in this way in order for his purposes to be fulfilled. And Jesus is obedient to that, isn't he? He says, you know, how then, how can these things happen that the scripture foretells unless this is allowed to take its course? On that basis... The fact that Jesus knew so very well what was about to happen to him in great detail, that suffering. I want us to remember today Jesus' absolute resolution and courage, resolve to honour God and to save his people. Knowing full well what was about to happen, the horrors of it. Remember in the Garden of Eden, and Garden of Eden, the Garden, the other Garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. My mind's a bit of a blur. The Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was there, and he, he, I often bring that up when I'm preaching because I, I, I ponder this moment when Jesus was absolutely agonising over the prospect of the cross, and not just the physical sufferings of that cross, but the, the great um, anguish of having to bear the sin of his people and face the judgment, as it were, poured out on him. And we know what it, you know, we know what it says. You know, he was, he, his sweat was like drops of blood, and he was praying. 
And he, he prayed to God. He said, Lord, if, you know, if it be possible for this cup to be taken from me, this cup of, cup of God's wrath, this suffering to be taken from me, may it be so. But then there's that, there's that climatic verse. But not as, not as I will, but as you will. Submits, surrenders himself fully to what must happen that's been ordained by God. From this point in the gospel, we can see Jesus moving like a glacier. It just moves on its course towards the cross. Steadfastly, courageously. It's inevitable. That's his destination. That's where he's heading for. Nothing will deter him from that course. He knew it was the only way, the only way to please his father, the only way to secure the salvation of his people by shedding his blood for them. In a sense, we might already say that Jesus had taken up his cross. We, we remember, don't we, the walk to, to the hill of Calvary when Jesus carried his own cross, we believe, for, for a part of the journey at least, and then um, Simon carried the cross the rest of the way. But in a sense, from this point, I believe Jesus, you could say metaphorically, had already taken up his cross. and He was moving towards that hill of crucifixion. As I said, with this great courage, with this resolve, with this boldness, with this absolute submission to the will of his Father. His own ambitions, his own considerations, his own comfort did not even come into the picture in the smallest way. Didn't even figure on his imagination. All he cared about was doing the will of the Father. John chapter 12, verse 27, we see a similar example, um, occasion when Jesus spoke about this resolve. Now my soul is troubled, says Jesus, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Even facing that, that awful prospect of the cross, Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. The cross was central to the plan of God, the purposes of God. So I want us to, tonight to admire the courage of Jesus and the, the love of Jesus and the obedience of Jesus to go through that, to walk towards that cross, to carry his cross to move towards that, knowing full well what was going to happen, but seeing the victory beyond the cross, the joy beyond the cross. We've got this rather, rather amazing and famous incident here in verse 22. So after Jesus has been teaching these things, Peter, the rock, has the audacity, the boldness to take Jesus aside and begin to rebuke him, begins to tell him off, begins to correct the Lord Jesus. It says this, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. The actual translation, I believe, means something like this. You know, may, may God be gracious to you, Lord, this will never happen to you. God forbid that this should happen. I want us to ponder for a, for a moment, Peter. 
So not long before this, the Lord Jesus had, had spoke of his blessedness because he had, he had been, God had revealed to him the identity of Christ. And it's not difficult to imagine Peter becoming rather conceited and um, perhaps thinking that he was, he was you know, elevated above the other apostles because he'd, he'd received this revelation. And perhaps he, I don't know, perhaps he got emboldened, felt emboldened to get ideas above his station and to, to dare to correct his Lord or try to correct his Lord. Even to say that to God, to, to the Lord Jesus, no Lord, is that not at the very heart of the human condition, the human sinful condition? Rather than saying, yes, Lord, whatever you say to me, I will do it. Whatever you say to me, I, I will agree with you because you are wiser than me. You are righteous. So often we say no. We say no. It shall never happen in the way that you've said. I know better than you. I think that we can see examples of that all around us. We need to be very careful, don't we, brothers and sisters, about a sense of spiritual pride creeping in. Perhaps you've been a Christian for a while and you, you start to make progress in the things of God and you start to understand more. Perhaps you, you, as it seems to you, rise above other people in terms of your knowledge, in terms of your Christian experience, in terms of your wisdom. There's always a danger in that time, at that time, that you, you start to become spiritually proud and conceited. And very sadly, there are people who, like Peter, dare to contradict the word of God, the revealed word of God. And human conceit is a terrible thing, human pride, when people start saying to God, I don't, I don't really think this is right, I don't agree with you on this, I know better than you, I can't believe this in the Bible, I can't believe that, I see God this way, I don't see it like this. We need to be very careful that we, we allow ourselves to be judged by the word of God rather than us judging the word of God and sitting over the word of God. Rather, we, we, we should submit to it and say, yes, Lord. Whatever you say to me, I, I take it, I accept it, rather than try to contradict it. I was thinking about Job when God says to him, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? God says basically at the end of Job, you know, who are you to, to question me? Can you even begin to understand my purposes, my character, the might, the, the wisdom with which I created the universe? Why did Peter say this? I think he was well-meaning. I think he had a big mouth. I think he, he, he tended to say things uh, without thinking first. It made, made no sense to him that Jesus should be executed. Peter did not know the scriptures well enough to see in the Old Testament that a suffering Messiah was part of God's plan, a key part of God's plan. And Peter looked, heard Jesus talking about the cross. All he could see was defeat, humiliation, shame. Brothers and sisters, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It makes no sense. There's no logic in it. And even today, the cross of Jesus, a crucified saviour, is a stumbling block for many people. They might like many things about Jesus, but when it gets to the cross, they cannot accept that. It just seems foolish. 
I think we can sympathize with Peter, can't we? You know, one, one moment Jesus is talking in quite victorious terms about his church um, overcoming. The gates of Hades not overcoming his church. And these exalted positions and responsibilities in, in the kingdom. And him being the son of God and the Messiah. And Peter simply could not connect that with the idea of him being crucified and him being killed in a most shameful way. And these were, these were men who were well familiar, very familiar with crucifixion. People were crucified all over the place in that time, at that time, in that place. It's a shameful thing. Perhaps Peter thought that Jesus had lost his confidence, as we're apt to do. One, one minute he's talking, you know, victoriously, hopefully, optimistically. The next minute he's talking about defeat and humiliation. I think Peter completely missed a bit at the end about the resurrection. He just saw the defeat and the shame. Perhaps Jesus had become depressed or discouraged. And Peter well-meaningly tries to G him up a bit, try to encourage him. Come on, come on, Lord. It's not that bad. It's not going to happen to you. Stop talking like this. Peter had not understood God's plans and purposes. It says, Jesus said, you know, you've become a stumbling block to me, the rock. If we're taking Peter to be the rock upon which the Lord would build his church, you've become a stumbling block, a stone of offense, a stone that people trip over, a stone that's in the way of the purposes of God. Then we have this, this rather stinging rebuke that Jesus gives to Peter Verse 23, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. It's a very strong thing, isn't it, to call somebody Satan? Or to, I, I pondered this. Was Jesus actually, was he talking to Peter saying that somehow Satan had possessed him? I don't think that's the case. Like the serpent in the garden. Was Jesus actually actually speaking to Satan rather than Peter? Was he saying to Peter, you're speaking like Satan. What you're saying is, is, you know, is exactly what Satan would say. So you've become like Satan. But in a sense, Peter had become a mouthpiece, hadn't he, for the devil to speak his lies. Think about the revelation of Jesus, a son of God and Messiah, to Peter. That didn't come from him, that came from the Father. And Jesus makes that clear. And in a sense, this, 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 um, these words didn't come from Peter himself, perhaps, but came from the devil. They were planted there. So this man who made this great profession suddenly becomes someone who's saying something which is completely contrary to the will of God. I think the, the temptation for Jesus, the greatest temptation for him would have been to avoid the cross. We've mentioned before many times the horrors of the cross. None of us has ever seen a crucifixion. But it would have been a fearful, fearful prospect. I think from the time that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, from that time onwards, the devil had always presented him with opportunities to disobey his father, to avoid the cross. From that time when the devil said to him, you know, if you, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and worship me. To try to avoid the suffering, to get the glory without the, 
without the, um, the necessary atoning sacrifice being made. On this occasion, Satan was doing exactly the same thing, wasn't he? He was trying to deter Jesus from going to the cross by presenting him with an easy way to avoid that suffering, to avoid the horror of the cross, the shame of the cross. What I noticed here, and I hope you notice as well, is that Jesus dealt with Satan in exactly the same way that he dealt with Satan when he was in the wilderness. Completely sends him packing, doesn't he? Swats him away completely. He's like, away with me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus knows where this is coming from. He doesn't give in to it. He doesn't ponder it. He just says straight away, I know where this is coming from. Get behind me, Satan. Be gone. I'm not even going to contemplate these lies. I know what must happen in order for me to be obedient to my father, to save my people. Even good men and women can say things at times which are not from God. We need to be careful. We need to test what people say. I mean, I'm not not saying they do it intentionally, but I'm sure even good people sometimes say unhelpful things which are not actually in line with the wisdom of God. And we need to be careful. We should be very grateful that Jesus sent Satan packing when he came with his lies. Because if Jesus had given in to that, not that there was any, any prospect of that happening, but if he'd given in to that, he wouldn't have been able to die on the cross for us. We would all be lost. And I want to give glory to the Lord for his overcoming strength and fortitude and courage to not give in to that temptation, even though it came from the lips of a good friend and a follower. I want quickly to draw attention to what Jesus says here about, in verse 23 about the things of God and the things of men. What does he mean by this? Well, I think he's talking here about the wisdom of God, the ways, the purposes of God, the logic of God, as it were, and contrasting that with human wisdom, so-called wisdom, and human logic and human understanding. Have you noticed the two are not the same? That they're diametrically opposed to each other. In James chapter 3, James says this as well. James talks about these two kinds of wisdom. I just thought of this verse before I came to church. Let me read it to you. James talks about these two types of wisdom. Verse 15 of James chapter 3. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly and spiritual of the devil. And then there's verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. So there are two types of wisdom. One, one is earthly, but also it says here, from the devil, of the devil. And then there's a heavenly wisdom, a wisdom that comes from God, which has all these good qualities about it. So 
So we need to be careful that we listen to, the, to heavenly wisdom and have the mind of Christ rather than giving in, giving in to the, the, the worldly wisdom, which actually Jesus connects with the devil in these verses. Then Jesus goes on in verse 24 to teach the disciples some very important lessons about the nature of discipleship. Just in case the disciples still had this idea that somehow being a follower of Jesus was going to be about a great victorious kind of um, imminent kingdom being ushered in before their very eyes and then being given important and prominent roles in that kingdom with glory and honor involved in that. He immediately kind of takes away that notion and he teaches them what, what following him will really involve. You can imagine the disciples still had their, their heads full of this idea about being given the keys to the kingdom and so forth and being the rock upon which the church will be built and Jesus brings them straight back down to earth. Wait to look at verse 25. Jesus says this, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What does it mean to lose one's life for Jesus? I think Jesus makes it clear in verse 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Notice he says here, if anyone would come after me. He's not just talking about the apostles. I believe he's looking forward to all generations of Christians He's not just talking about missionaries and martyrs. If anyone would come after him, if anyone would follow him, if anyone would be a Christian, these things are essential. He must, there's that word again, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I don't know about you, I find find it very difficult to teach on these verses because I find denying myself very difficult. These, these stages are all connected, aren't they? Denying yourself, taking up your cross, resolving to follow the Lord Jesus means accepting that we must walk in the same way that he did. Not living to please ourselves. Not living according to our own desires and whims and ambitions and pleasures. Not pleasing ourselves and gratifying the desires of the flesh with, with a certain resolve, looking towards the Lord who goes on before us, the Lord Jesus, taking up his cross, walking towards the place of crucifixion. And we follow him, not just by, by emulating him, but by going to the very place that he has gone to. I don't think Jesus is saying here that every single Christian will be a martyr, not everyone will die for the sake of the kingdom, but that sense of obedience, of completely dying to myself, ourselves, laying down our own ambitions, our own right to be, to be in charge of our own lives, we lay all down at his feet and say, my life completely belongs to you. I'm like a person carrying this cross on the way to be executed. That person has no thought of his own ambitions, he has no thought of escape, He's no thought of any, any pleasures to come. All he cares about is walking that path 
That's all he can do in a sense. He's a slave to the cross. He has to walk that path marked out for him, whatever the suffering it entails. I think what Jesus is saying here, I can't really do justice to it tonight, but I think the idea is that we as Christian people are called to deny ourselves. And being a Christian is not just about what I can get. It's not just about having an easy life at the expense of Christ. It's about laying down our lives in service, sacrificial, costly obedience. In a sense, that's what, what Jesus calls people to when he calls them to follow him. He's not calling them to a life of ease a bed of roses, a pleasure cruise. He's calling them to a life of unmitigated suffering, self-denial, crucifixion of your own sinful desires, laying aside your own pleasures and interests and ambitions, laying them at the foot of the cross and saying, I'm totally devoted to God. My life belongs to him. All that I have is his. Whatever he tells me to do, I will do. Wherever he tells me to go, I will go. Whatever he tells me to give up, I will give up. Nothing is too much. So that would include everything, my reputation, my money, my time, my dreams, my future marital status, and even my very life, if God were to call me to do that, to lay that down. For the Christian person, there is no price too much. You can't say, well, you know, that's the limit of what I owe God. We owe God everything. And it's easy to say, isn't it, in the comfort and safety of this building. But that's what the Bible teaches. Were God to call us to give up our lives tonight on this spot, we would, would, as Christian people, have to say, it may not be easy, but that's exactly what I need to do. If it brings honor to my Lord, if that's what he demands of me, if that's the path that he's marked out for me to follow. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you, give you life as the victor's crown. Revelation 2. Be faithful even to the point of death. I think if we're honest, most of us find it, we find it harder to give up things for the Lord, much, much lighter things than our lives, don't we? Because everything against is pulling against that, isn't it? You know, I'm, I'm the same as you, probably. I, I, you know, I like comfortable beds and, and nice food and ease and comfort and safety and security. They're not bad things. The Lord does bless us with these things. But we're not guaranteed these things. They could all be taken away. We're constantly being pulled back, aren't we, to this selfishness, gratifying oneself, living for oneself. So we have to take up our, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus, emulating him, following him, living a life with the same quality of sacrificial obedience, self-denial, as he exhibited, as he moved towards the cross. That may sound a very daunting thing, but actually, Jesus says here, those who lose their lives in that sense by walking this path of obedience will actually find their lives. Verse 25. So that's, that's losing your life, living this life of sacrificial obedience to the law. But what's the alternative? We see it here, don't we, in verse 25. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. So the alternative to losing your life for the sake of the gospel for Christ is trying to save your life. What does this mean? What does this involve? Well, I believe it, it means just, just the exact opposite of losing your life. It means not following Jesus. 
not denying yourself, not taking up your cross, clinging to your life, to your pleasures, both your physical life and also the quality of that life at all costs. Luke and Mark both talk about this account. They have their own accounts of this this episode in the life of Jesus. And Luke adds something which which Matthew doesn't have. He says that he warns against the dangers of cowardly self-preservation. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, Jesus will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory. It's in the context of this. There is such a thing as a cowardly, craven, giving up of one's life, of, of trying to preserve one's life and denying Christ in the meantime. Now, of course, it's a very easy thing for us to say, isn't it? But that's, that has to be the reality for a Christian. Even to the point of death, if someone puts a gun against my head, I will not turn away from my Lord and not deny him under any circumstances. Let others turn away from him and deny him to save their skins, but I will not do that. By God's grace, if I'm called to that. And just as Peter said to, said to Jesus, no, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I believe the devil, Satan, with his worldly wisdom, tries to deter Christians and other people from following this path of self-sacrifice. The wisdom of this world tells you Many things, doesn't it? It tells us, it says, says things like, you know, eat, drink, and, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Don't take things too seriously. You're taking your Christian faith far too seriously. Just relax and don't worry. Worldly wisdom tells you to preserve yourself at any cost, at all costs. It tells you to make pleasure the God of your life, self fulfillment and gratification. It shuts down any thought of self denial. Any talk of self-sacrifice. The wisdom from from this world, from the devil, entices you with this instant gratification. It mocks the idea of giving up things now to achieve something far greater, to attain something greater. It says, have it all now. Don't worry about the future. That is the wisdom of this world. That is a devilish wisdom. That is is satanic, designed to cause people to save their lives now, but to lose their life to lose their soul. They have an appearance of wisdom. They're very alluring, aren't they, these kinds of voices? Offering you sin and the pleasures of this world. It's a bit like Esau with his soup, with his stew. He gave up his birthright for one bowl of stew because the, the desire to have that stew was so overpowering, the smell, the fragrance of it. We all know, we, you know what it's like when you're hungry. You want something so much to satisfy your hunger. And sometimes sin and the pleasures of this world are like that. We want it all now. We're not prepared to give it up, deny ourselves for the sake of the gospel for a greater price. In what sense do we lose or find our lives? Well, I believe it starts in this life. If you're not a Christian and you try to save your life in this life, you will find your life is full of diminishing returns. I'm not denying that some non-Christians are very, appear to be very happy and satisfied. Their lives are full of good things, full of blessings, good health. But if you try desperately to hold on to your life, to hold on to all these things that should be given to God and sacrificed to him, you will find most probably that you are empty, you are hollow, you are tossed around like a ship without a rudder in a storm. 
You have fear of the future. You, you'll live under the fear of, of death because that for you is the ultimate tragedy. And yet the more you try and grab onto these things, the more you'll be like chasing the wind. And we see that all around us, don't we? People chasing the wind, trying to get this, trying to get this, climb the ladder, trying to save their lives, cram as much pleasure and fulfillment as they can into this short life because there's nothing else to come for them. Uh, I put it to you that if you try and save your life, even in this life, you will lose your life. You will lose out on that abundant life that God promises to us, despite the suffering and the sacrifice. Let me say this. I've been a Christian now for many years. Not as as many as some of you, but I've been a Christian for for many years. And all the things that I've given up over the years, and I've not given up that many things compared to some of you, I'm sure, I've never regretted giving up anything for the sake of Christ. Actually, ultimately. In fact, the more I've given up, the more I've served, the more parts of my life I've surrendered to the Lord Jesus and not held back, the the greater my joy has been, the greater my freedom in Christ has been. It's a sweet and a beautiful thing to live your life in line with the will of God, to go to bed and with a clean conscience wake up in the morning knowing that you're a friend of God, you're walking according to his purposes, you're not rebelling against him, you're not trying to hold something back. You'll never lose out, ultimately, if you give up things for Christ. Many of our struggles as Christians come, I believe, because we we still try to hold on to things rather than giving them to God. Hold on to things we shouldn't be holding on to. Sins, idols, that little bit of my life that I don't want to give to him, that I don't want to submit to him. That's what causes us all kinds of problems. We need to pray that God would help us to give ourselves fully to his service. And we will, be, we will be rewarded for that. We will be blessed in this life. Jesus here speaks, doesn't he, in verse 27 about something far weightier. For the Son of Man, that's another word for Jesus, is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I wouldn't want anybody to read this and think that my salvation, my eternal destiny depends on how good I've been or how much I've given up for Christ. There's one way that anybody can enter the kingdom, and that is by putting their faith in Jesus Christ and trusting in him alone for salvation. But what Jesus is saying here is that there will be, what Chris mentioned this morning, a day of reckoning when all of us and all people will be brought before God. And on that day, some will be rewarded and some will suffer loss. Those who've trusted in Christ will be saved by faith in Christ alone, but they will be rewarded for their obedience. They'll be rewarded for their faithfulness, for their sacrifice, for for walking this path of self-denial and carrying their cross every day. There'll be a rich reward for these people. They will find their life. They will be given the gift of eternal life. And as Chris reminded us, hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And that is the prize on offer. That is the reward that every Christian can look forward to. Whatever you've had to give up in this life, the compensation will be far greater, the reward will be greater when you see your Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus face to face. Your joy will be overwhelming. Worship and adoration. But those who have tried to hold on to their lives in this life, their own 
sense of self-worth and importance and pleasure, they will lose everything on that day. Their souls will be lost for all eternity. I want to say one or two things just quickly about the value of the human soul. What is the most valuable thing that you possess? Quite interesting, wouldn't it, to go and ask people in the streets of Brighton, what, what, what's the most valuable thing that you possess? Is it your car? Is it your home? Is it your life, your physical life, your existence? But for most people who have no concept of eternal life, life after the grave, their answer would be, well, of course, my most valuable possession is my physical life, my existence as a human being. And, of course, if that's the most valuable thing that you have, it makes sense to try to preserve that at any cost. And that is why we live in a city which is, which is full of atheism, people who, don't, who profess not to believe in God and reject God. That is why atheism is such a satanic lie, because it denies all these things that we're talking about today, it denies the human soul. It denies life after death. It denies the judgment. It encourages people to put all their trust in things in this life because this is the sum of all things. There's nothing else according to the creed of atheism. It's stealing from people that the ability to, to find true life in the kingdom. But for the Christian person, as Chris reminded us, and it ties in so well with what we said this morning, my life, this tent, this body, this physical body, is not the most valuable thing that we possess. The most valuable thing that we, we and anybody else possess is actually, if they only knew it, is the, is the soul. That part of us which, us which lives forever. And Jesus says this very famous verse, doesn't he, in verse 26, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Think about all the pleasures and treasures this world could afford. And there are some very wonderful things in this world. Imagine all those things put in one place, this great big mountain of treasures and good things to enjoy and experiences. They could all be put in one place. I think according to Jesus, even all that stuff massed together could never ever compensate for the loss of a soul. The human soul, one human soul is far more important. My soul is more important than all those treasures. What good would it be to me if I had all this stuff but lost that part of me which will live forever but not live with God if I reject the Lord Jesus? Would you say on the day of judgment when, when God says to you, you know, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, you sinner, you didn't believe in me, my son, you didn't trust him, would you, would you say, well, I'm losing my soul, but it doesn't matter because I had a wonderful life and all this stuff and I had a great car and a great family and that's more than enough for me. I, you can keep your heaven and eternal life, but I, I had a wonderful life in this world. I guarantee there's not a single person who will say that. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. People bitterly regret. Why was I so stupid to work for food that spoils? Just chasing, chasing the wind after things that do not satisfy even in this life. Jesus says here, what can, a, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? On that day of judgment, when, you know, for some people, many people, that, that, that hand of God will say guilty, will we try and bargain with God and try and offer him 
some kind of bribe. People would, would give anything, wouldn't they, to avoid hell and the judgment. They would, would literally give anything they work for to avoid that. But nothing will be acceptable on that day. Nothing will get you out of that predicament. There's a verse in Proverbs that says this, For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse a bribe, however great it is. It's talking about a jealous husband. Whatever a man might do to try and placate a jealous and angry husband, he will not accept any price for cheating on his wife to try and pay him off. And it's the same with God. On that day of judgment, people can beg and can, could offer him anything, but it will not be acceptable. Nothing can atone for a soul except for the blood of Jesus. That's the one thing that can atone for a human soul. What would you give in exchange for a soul? Nothing from this world, but only the blood of Jesus. How careless people are about their souls. What a great tragedy that is that people are more concerned about so many other things than about their eternal souls. Are we concerned about the souls of men and women? I found out that I think something like 150,000 people a day in the world die. Their physical bodies fail. They pass into eternity facing the judgment. 150,000 people. doesn't sound a lot. 7 billion people in the world. But every day that amount of people, perhaps more, pass into eternity. Many others are on the brink of it. As Chris reminded us, none of us knows when our time will come. I pray for myself, I I pray for you as well, for all of us as a church, that we have a a deep concern for the souls of men and women, people. Concerned about them. It's, It's a very good thing to put food in people's bellies, to help the poor. I'm fully for that, and the Bible is for that. But how much more should we be, we be concerned about people's eternal souls? People are fearfully lost. People need salvation, which can be theirs through faith in Jesus. I pray this year we'll, we'll be stimulated to pray and to evangelize, to make Christ known that by his grace, many would escape from this, this trap of trying to find their lives here and actually losing it and rather would find Christ, lose their lives here, and ultimately attain eternal life and the reward for the righteous. I want to encourage us with the words of the Lord. You know, I've said it before, the Christian life can be hard. I think we're we're probably spared the worst excesses of it in this country, but we, we do suffer, we do struggle, we're subject to a spiritual battle. The Christian life does involve a cost. It involves sacrifices. It involves hearing the voice of human wisdom, which is actually Satan saying to us, you know, it's better to give up. You're throwing away your life in vain. It's not going to achieve anything. Stop all this negative talk about self-denial. This shall never happen to you. Don't do anything to jeopardize your safety, comfort, and security. I think just like Jesus, we need to to recognize where these voices come from. 
And like Jesus, send them packing. So this is, this is Satan behind this, actually. Telling me to give up, telling me just to take it easy and not bother. Just like Jesus, just send him packing, swat him away. Walk that path. Carry that cross. Pray for each other. It's not easy, is it? It's that famous verse, um, not verse, that famous um, saying of Jim Elliot, a young man who was, who was um, a missionary and he was killed in, in the line of duty. He said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think I've said enough. Let's pray.